Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. And Paul Bananos, Associate Editor. On today's pod, M&A and Data, Recipe for a Biotech Rebound. We look at billion-dollar deals by Pfizer and Amgen, and standout data over the past few days from Al Nylum and Karuna. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by the BioCentury Bay Helix East-West Biopharma Summit. It's coming to you November 14th through 16th in beautiful downtown Redwood City in the San Francisco Bay Area. Virtual attendance is an option. At the summit, U.S., European, and Asian biopharma executives and investors will debate globalization strategies to maximize company and patient value. The conference will include strategic panels, company presentations, one-to-one meetings, C-level networking, and an exclusive report from our partners at McKinsey. Learn more and register at biocenturyeastwest.com. Um, Well, what a difference a week makes. Since last week's pod, two key biotech indexes are up handily. The XBI, I believe, is up nearly 20% in the past five days. The NBI up 10%. Paul, we've seen an uptick in deal-making recently, including more signs of life in biotech M&A. The latest deal came today, pfizer is buying Global Blood Therapeutics. Tell us about the deal, Paul. Sure. So GBT specializes in treatments for sickle cell disease. They've got one product on the market, that's Oxbrita, approved in late 2019, and more in the pipeline. They've done well with the Oxbrita launch sales, approached $200 million last year, and they're already above $125 million in the first six months of 2022. Now, part of that's from geographic expansion. Uh, they've got approvals in Europe and a couple of Middle Eastern countries, UAE and Oman. But they've been saying all along that the launch might have gone better all along, uh, but for COVID, which has prevented some people from getting to the doctor for these past couple of years. But then from the tone of Pfizer's announcement, it sounds like the company's going to use its global reach to get the drug to a lot more patients in the developing world. As you may know, sickle cell disease is disproportionately prevalent among people of African, Middle Eastern, and South Asian descent. So there are large populations outside of major markets in the developed world uh, where Oxbrite can benefit people. And, and Pfizer CEO, Albert Borlas, said it in a couple of tweets this morning. They want to help close what he called a health equity gap and reach more patients that have historically been uh, overlooked and underserved, as he put it. So Pfizer obviously has infrastructure in place to sell therapies all over the world, and that's what they're going to do with this one. Paul, this is a small molecule, right? Is this Pfizer's vote against gene therapies? Or, you know, we know that there's a lot of other modality therapies for sickle cell. Did Pfizer talk at all about competition that's upcoming for this product? Uh, I haven't heard them. No, they, they do have one of their own. Uh, they do have a therapy of their own in the pipeline for sickle cell disease. But this obviously puts them way out in front building the franchise. I think that there's also the global aspect of this because small molecules are something that can be deployed globally. And a lot of the gene therapies and gene editing therapies that are coming through the pipeline that look really promising, 
they involve a stem cell transplant. And that's not going to be accessible to a lot of patients, at least for a long time. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because I think a lot of people have been sort of thinking about the next phase of sickle cell as really being these advanced therapies. But actually, you're spot on, Lauren, because that's not going to be accessible to a lot of patients. And this one is approved, as you point out, Paul. So they get to build the commercial structure anyway and uh, so on. They do have another small molecule behind it in the pipeline, as well as a MAB. Those are worth mentioning. And, and they say that the total franchise, the two companies in their release this morning say that the total franchise could reach $3 billion in peak sales. So Paul, I guess Pfizer is as able to do M&A deals as it ever has been? Yeah, it's, it seems that way. I mean, we, we published a chart a couple of weeks ago when their earnings came out, the quarterly uh, Q2 earnings that kind of illustrated their cash situation. Um, you know, they've had not one, but two COVID products that are doing enormous sales, more than $8 billion a piece during the second quarter alone. Just really astounding numbers that exceed the base business. For the quarter, they had $27.7 billion in sales coming in. So they've been able to spend. They're laying out $11.6 billion for um, Biohaven, which is another company in the middle of a, a good launch. They have an oral migraine therapy, one of the new CGRPs, competes with Mavs, but uh, that one's oral. And, um, you know, don't forget last year they bought Arena for $6.7 billion. They had a late stage compound, Etrazumab, that wound up having good data after the deal in, in irritable bowel disease. Yeah, huge cash reserves. It'll be put to work somehow. So just one point about this very cool chart um, that you'll find on our website. What I thought was kind of interesting, and I don't know if it's the scale of the chart, but actually the sales on their non-COVID products hadn't changed that much. I mean, the growth that you saw was really all the COVID-related things and their, you know, I don't know if we call it regular or non-COVID pipeline or whatever, was, was relatively stable. Not, not a lot, not a huge amount of growth there. Yes, stable can be good. And you have to wonder if there were some commercial headwinds around some of the products because of the pandemic too. But either way, the cash position is, is such that they can do more deals. Are they done? Probably not. I mean, we'll see what happens next. They're guiding for a $100 billion year with about $54 billion from uh, the two COVID therapies, Paxlovid and, and the vaccine they share with BioNTech. A lot of money piling up. And lots of news piling up, Paul. Uh, there was a readout in schizophrenia from Karuna that a lot of people were waiting for, and sounds like it's good news. It sure does. So Karuna, it's worth telling they have an interesting backstory. The CEO, Stephen Paul, was a scientist at Lilly for a long time. And in the 90s, Lilly was working on a product called Xenomaline that showed some promise, but wound up languishing on the shelf. Uh, Stephen Paul's one of the authors of a 1997 paper that showed Xenomaline did show a treatment effect in Alzheimer's patients, but there were a lot of discontinuations in that study due to GI effects. And Paul, over the years, went on to be a VC at Third Rock for a while. And then in 2018, he helped launch Karuna, kind of reviving a pet project with a founding investor, Pure Tech Health. And what Karuna has done is combined Xenomaline, a muscarinic acetylcholine agonist that acts on the M1 and M4 receptors to produce the treatment effect, with an antagonist of M2 and M3 called trospium chloride. And the latter compound acts only in the periphery, not the CNS. It doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. So the combination is meant to tamp down side effects while still improving symptoms of schizophrenia. Anyway, Karuna has had a nice run since launch. They went public. They had some phase two data that were met with great enthusiasm in November 2019. 
The combo, which they call CAR-XT at that time, led to improvements compared with placebo on a scale measuring positive and negative symptoms of schizophrenia. Positive being things like hallucinations and delusions, negative being things like social withdrawal. And the side effect profile was good, not seeing sedation, weight gain, extrapyramidal motor side effects. So that led to a phase three program. And today we have the first of two readouts in phase three, two uh, pivotal readouts anyway, or potentially pivotal. They showed another significant effect on the scale against placebo, again, with good safety and tolerability. The placebo adjusted benefit was almost as big as in the phase two trial. It was 9.6 points compared with 11.6 last time. And the other phase three isn't due to read out till the first quarter of next year, but they don't actually need it. They say they have alignment with FDA to treat the phase two as registrational and they they needed two studies. Now they have two studies. They may need to accumulate some more safety data, but they're looking at a submission in mid-2023. Well, what then, Paul? Are they going to go it alone uh, with the launch? Might they be a takeout target? Their uh, market cap swollen a bit today. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't rule out that they'll uh, go it alone. I, they, they've always said, as many biotechs do, that they're building to do that. But I'd have to think that they'd make a great buyout candidate for somebody. I mean... CAR-XT is the only clinical asset they have. They have a couple other preclinical things, but I think buyers would see them as a clean takeout target. And of course, the price has just gone way up. They added, I think as we speak, something like $3 billion in market cap. They're over $7 billion uh, as we record this this afternoon. And if you put a premium on that, you might have an 11-figure deal if things go in that direction. And, you know, in general, I, I think farmers with a lot of cash are seeing biotechs with approved drugs or approvable candidates as very attractive. I mean, we were just talking about this with Pfizer, but we've seen some other activity lately, like Amgen last week buying chemocentrics because they think they can supercharge a, a launch of what they have, Tavneos, for a form of vasculitis. Yeah, it feels like there's been an uptick in deal making lately. Uh, what were some of the other ones we've had, Paul? Sure. Well, we, we had a very slow season for a while there with the markets in turmoil. You know, the first quarter in particular was quiet. But um, we mentioned uh, Biohaven not long ago. Uh, as you wrote about last week, biotech indexes had their best week in a long time. And there were a few deals, too, helping to drive the sentiment. Uh, Gilead bought MiroBio, private company with autoimmune checkpoint agonists. And then, as you saw, there were some licensing deals to Roche uh, tapping into biotech's expertise for cell therapies and a fibrosis company, for example. We always hear with markets down that there will be some bargain hunting at some point or another, but also that good science and good assets are always going to get some interest. So, you know, whether we've touched the bottom or not, who knows, it's hard to say, but clearly the pace of deals is accelerating. And not for nothing, you know, we should mention our, our quarterly preview story a few weeks back by our colleague, Stephen Hansen singled out two key catalysts that would uh, potentially drive investor sentiment this quarter. And the first to read out was Alnylam's Apollo B result in the form of amyloidosis that results in cardiomyopathy. And that was positive and value creating. And the other was Karuna's. So two for two, it's good news for the sector. Well, two for two certainly is good news. And uh, in case you missed it, we had Yvonne Greenstreet, John Maraginore's successor as CEO of Al Nylum on the BioCentury show just a couple of weeks ago. She spoke with Simone about the pipeline that she has inherited. And one of the things she said was that while the platform has been de-risked, it's certainly not turnkey. Uh, Al Nylum just got its fifth product approved in June, but Staying with Onpatro, Lauren, do you have any takeaways on this trial in particular? 
So the the Apollo B study, this was one that the investors we spoke with thought could go either way because the primary endpoint was a six minute walk test, which has been a tough endpoint and sort of controversial. But so the results of this study really expand the potential indication for Onpatro. This was approved for TTR amyloidosis for the polyneuropathy associated with the condition. And this Apollo B study is looking at the same therapy in patients who have the cardiomyopathy manifestation of the disease, which is just a a huge indication uh, relative to the other form. And it's a move in the direction that the company has been going and that these RNA-based therapies have been going toward more prevalent indications. So, you know, multi-billion dollar market opportunity. All right. And uh, speaking of market opportunities. We had some other data over the weekend, Lauren, that you were following out of the World Conference on Lung Cancer with Amgen again, looking at some combinations for its KRAS program, Lumacras. How did that turn out? And might they have uh, more opportunities here to spin this into other things with this data or what? So what we saw this weekend were data, I think the first data for Lumacras in combination with PD-1 inhibitors. You know, they're taking a huge combination strategy to try to improve the durability of response for this really huge, important therapy for KRS non-small cell lung cancer. The problem with it is that the cancers mutate so quickly that even if you're hitting this driver, if you're not hitting it with with other mechanisms as well, there's resistance that's developing relatively quickly. So Amgen's testing, I think it's at least 10 different combinations. This is the one that they were pushing forward with first, I think. I'm not sure if we've seen any others, possibly chemotherapy. So it was looking promising. And the big problem that that we saw this weekend was toxicity. So when you combine Lumacras with the PD-1 inhibitors, they were getting very high levels of serious hepatotoxicity. You know, at the approved doses of Lumacras, it was almost every patient had grade three or higher liver toxicity. So they're testing a different dosing regimen. They're calling it the lead-in dosing, where they're taking a lower dose of Lumacras starting off with that, and then at least three weeks later, doing the combination therapy. We don't have too much data on that regimen yet. It's looking like hepatotoxicity might be a little lower. But I mean, the issue that they're having now is that this is for second line NSCLC. When you compare it with Lumacrest monotherapy, which is also approved for that indication, the responses are actually lower because so many patients have to drop out of the study and discontinue because of this toxicity. Yeah, that's a real mind kind of blowing thing that it's better as a monotherapy than in combination. But I do want to ask you, Lauren, I mean, there's uh, there's Marathi and then there's a bunch of other companies with some KRAS inhibitors. I believe Novartis is getting in that game and a few others. Are these molecules sufficiently differentiated to believe that they might not have this problem? Are they going in different indications? It's kind of a very hot space. So how should we think about this result for that space? It's a hot space because it's a relatively common cancer driver, especially for lung cancer. And it it was just such a big discovery that you could actually drug this target. Um, 
the one problem is we don't know exactly why this hepatotoxicity is happening. You know, it, it's been an issue for the Lumicrest monotherapy, but to have such high levels with the combination, they're not sure exactly why that's happening. So it's hard to tell, you know, if that's going to be a problem with the other ones as well. We know that there are some differences between uh, Lumicrest and Adagrasib, the, the Marathi therapy. There are differences in how it's dosed and the toxicity. So I think there are some differences that we're aware of. But a lot of the newer therapies in the pipeline are also going after different KRAS mutations. You know, it's not just the G12C. There are different mutations that are more common in different types of cancer and, and some really hard to treat cancers as well. One thing that I think is pretty interesting are the newer modalities against KRAS too. So, you know, if you're using KRAS as just like an anchor to target a cancer cell and then you have some mechanism to kill the cancer cell, like an ADC or, or something like that, maybe you can avoid some of the resistance that's developing. I don't know. So we haven't really seen clinical data on those. There's a lot of excitement around the target and there are a lot of different ways to get at the target. Excellent. Thanks for that, Lauren. Lauren's story is up on our website. You'll also find Paul's piece on the global blood deal and our pieces on Amgen's $4 billion takeout of chemocentrics, the standout alnylam data, and more. And I also want to call attention to one other thing. Uh, we brought it up last week. Simone has put out this super cool chart that is downloadable, colorful. You can pin it to your wall. It has all of the new modality approvals of what, Simone, the past couple of decades? All of the new modality approval therapies, not vaccines, so don't write to me and say mRNA, that are still on the market that haven't been withdrawn. And yes, I wrote this, but actually Lauren and many of other, other colleagues, this was actually quite, quite an effort to make sure we had it all up to date. So these are the new modality therapies, so not small molecules, not monoclonals, not fusion proteins and things that have been around for a very long time, but starting with ADCs, gene therapies, bispecific, cell therapies, CAR-Ts, meaning antisense and RNAi. Uh, those are the ones that have so far got approvals and they are global. So whether it's at FDA or in Europe or China and that are still on the market. So it is actually very cool because we've talked about this before. You just see this accelerating pace of innovation. And we have talked about it and we'll talk about it again in the future something Lauren and I have talked about is the sort of orthogonal way that these technologies push one another forward, you know, so sort of problems that get solved for one modality or technology can sometimes end up helping another. And if you're a, a Twitter buff, you can track down Simone uh, on Twitter and she has a tweet that has a copy of this image. So handy to get there, handy to get on biocentury.com and check it out. Uh, I certainly am getting ready to pin it up on my wall. All right, well, that's all we have time for. Uh, thank you very much for tuning in. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Presumably you found us via one of those or via our website. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. We will catch you next week.